Welcome everyone, I'm Lauren Hawkins. Thanks for tuning in with us to Spirituality Adventures. We are so glad you're here and we're very excited about the content we get to share with you through our blogs and podcasts. Spirituality Adventures is made possible by your support. One way you can support us is by liking, following, subscribing, or sharing any of these podcasts or blogs that you like. Another way you can support us is by going to our website, www.spiritualityadventures.com. There you can click the support tab and you can sign up for a monthly subscription or a one-time gift. We appreciate all your support. Now here's Fred. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality and we're glad you're joining us for this episode. We are so honored to have the former prime minister of Ethiopia with us on this podcast one of my favorite people to interview, I did this maybe 10 years ago and on a different setting and platform, we weren't doing podcast interviews, but um, I want to introduce to you uh, Tom Rot Laney, and I am just so excited to have you today, Tom Rot. I'm very pleased to meet you and uh, to have me here. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for coming. I, I'll give people just a quick uh, intro on how we met. Okay. And then I'm going to, um, then I'm going to have you tell, begin to tell parts of your story. So, but I, I think, I think we figured out it was at the national prayer breakfast yes. in February of uh, 2010. Yes. Right. Yeah. And one of our uh, friends, Carl Medeiros, introduced us to each other. And I had already been working in Ethiopia at the time. I think I might have gone to Ethiopia the first time in, I think, maybe 2008. And so when I met you, I was immediately intrigued with your story. It's one of the most amazing stories that I've ever heard in person, you know, with somebody that I've come to know. And, and I, I invited you to the Vineyard Church and you came yes. and spoke at the church. This was probably in 2010, maybe. Yes. Yeah, I think and so. So we've known each other for a decade now. That's right. It's been a decade. That's crazy. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I know. <laughs> well, and and so um, Tom Rott and his wife Mulu live in Denver right now, but they drove in from Denver just to hang out in Kansas City a few days. So uh, welcome to Kansas City. Thank you so much. Uh, we, we've enjoyed Kansas City. Uh, we have had a tour yesterday with you, our... Uh, our tour guide, wonderful tour guide, and, <laughs> <laughs> and we have seen a lot of places, and uh, yeah, we're enjoying. Thank you. Yeah, I love Kansas City, and I I played tour guide yesterday. So we we did uh, we started up in the Northland by KCI Airport, and then we traveled into uh we went south we went to north kansas city then i took them to the river market then i took them to the crossroads union station crown center liberty memorial we didn't stop and go into all these places but we kind of did a big uh, driving tour yeah and then we wound up down in westport had lunch in westport 
took them to the plaza mm-hmm. and then kind of by KU Med Center and then looped all the way out to Sporting KC. And yeah, I thought you'd uh, forget that stadium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alan yeah, Diet- we saw that. Dietrich, gave us, Dietrich gave us a tour out there. Yeah, so. wonderful guy. Uh, Fun stuff. Yeah. And then, then dinner on the plaza last night. It was nice. With, it was with our friend Calvin Arsenia and Tim Place and Chandra. So lovely young friends. Yes. Uh, so Tom Rod, tell tell get us started into your story. Where where were you born? Where did you grow up? And what did you dream about being when you were a teenager? <laughs> <laughs> Born in Addis, Addis Ababa, it's called the capital city of Ethiopia. I was born there, raised there as a city boy. Um, both of my elementary, high school, and then university. Of course, I quit university uh, after second year, but all in Addis, in Addis Ababa, in capital city. Um, yeah, and then uh, when I was in high school, I was dreaming to be a medical doctor. Mm. Uh, and when I get to college, I had even the necessary requirements to be to to be enrolled in medical school. But then uh, I quit um, when I get into second year. I quit, and I had to go to. The mountains, another story, another chapter of my life. So uh, I grew up with my mom. Uh, my my father and my mother uh, do not live together. When I was a child, they separated when I was seven years old, six or seven. So I grew up with my mother most of the times, most of my life, almost all my life. But... I also knew my dad. I used to go to him whenever there is a you know, vacation, um, school break, school vacation. I used to live in another state of the Ethiopia, and uh, I used to go and visit him and stay with him. But I usually, I yeah, I raised up with uh, uh, by my mother. I have. A sister, a younger sister, and a younger brother. Uh, yeah. Okay. This is in short. Right. <laughs> so, so let's let's jump into the political context of Ethiopia when you were in high school. Let's say, give the people a little feel for what the Ethiopian government was like when you were in high school. Well, when I was in high school uh, and even before that, there was this Ethiopian student movement, we call it, that the Ethiopian students, most mostly the university students in the universities and some colleges, they used to, um, several kinds of movements, democratic movements, um, and they were uh, protesting against the government and an organized movements, demonstrations uh, on the streets and so on. This started in the 60s and, and uh, continued all the way uh, up to the, the mid-70s. And 
I can say I am the offspring of that student movement in, in its political sense. Uh, and when I get to, I even started when I was in uh, uh, middle school, like seventh, eighth grade, um, trying to mobilize students and create problems in, <laughs> in, <laughs> in classes and, and in our school. And then, but when I get to high school, I started being involved in the, in this student movement in more, uh, uh, of course, most of the times emotionally, um, but also feeling some things that are not fair and injustice and so on in the country. And I started to join some groups of the student movements and I also started um, uh, involved in a student union leadership, student unions. Um, it was interesting and it was, it was on the one hand fun, but on the other hand, it was uh, the time that my future, I can say, was one way or the other directed towards politics more and more. That mm -hmm. was the time out of the student movement then in 1974 there was a big popular protest in ethiopia in all over ethiopia against uh, the emperor uh, we were ruled by an emperor at that time emperor Haile Selassie is his name he, he was a, a king long time reigning king for more than 45 years so it was the whole movement was against that government. It was a, a monarchy. And uh, the student movement itself grew from a local questions into a nationwide political questions about democracy, democratic rights, democratic government, you know, things like that. So things evolved that way. And I also was uh became part of that okay so you describe it as democratic but i've also heard you you describe yourself as communist as well at that period of time not today you wouldn't but back then yeah so when in america when we hear democratic we think one thing when we hear communist we think a different thing yeah right yeah tell us tell us a little bit about that and and after the emperor you, then you had a, a communist dictator, right? Uh -huh. the, and so mm -hmm. give us, give, what's the difference in Ethiopia between the democratic youth movement? How does that connect to the communism that you embraced as yeah. a young man? And why were you against the communist dictator? The democrat, the, the generally democratic questions that were raised by the student movement, uh, then later on, especially after 1974, uh, mid 1970s up to 1976-77 it, it evolved into a communist movement so two different things of course democratic and communist so why that happened is that um, communism uh, generally was at that time was um, you can tell the trendy thing uh, among the, the, the student movement, it became trendy, it became uh, an issue. 
not only in Ethiopia, but all over Africa. And uh, in the 1970s, beginning of 1970s, and even the end of 1960s, um, in most of the developing countries, the so-called developing countries like Africa, Asia, Latin America, communism started to, you know, get uh, the, um, the, the trend of the time. And Ethiopia also became that. And the student movement was a pioneer of the popular movement as a whole. And through the student, Ethiopian students in America, student, Ethiopian students in Europe, this communist literature, Marxist-Leninist ideological literature started to penetrate into Ethiopia. And, and the students, mainly students, and in the intellectual, the intelligentsia generally, started studying histories of revolutions in different countries, mainly Russian revolution of the 1917, you know, those periods, Chinese revolution of the 1930s and 40s, the Cuban revolution, Latin America, and, you know, Peru communist movement, things like that. And, and because of that, this communist ideology become, became uh, the trend. And that student movement that started in the 1960s and 70s in Ethiopia with democratic issues took shape into a communist ideology. Okay. So, so you went from a democratic ideology to a communist ideology yeah. in that process. Still, yeah. almost still the same student movement, though. It, yeah, you a lot of you shifted together. Shifted together. Okay, it started as a student movement, but then stage by stage, you know, other sectors of the the population started right. to get in, and but the communist movement became. So after the emperor, you had a. Communist dictator, what was his yes. name? Yes, 1974, uh, as a result of that popular revolution mm -hmm. protest. Just like, you know, you remember this Egyptian uh, protest uh, uh, some time ago? Mm -hmm. it, just like that. All over the country, the, the people just raised against the emperor. In 1975, the, the Arab Spring, were you referring yeah, to the Arab like Spring? Yeah, like the Arab Spring. Yeah, okay. That kind of mm -hmm. thing. That with that magnitude, mm -hmm. and in 1975, the uh, a military uh, 120 military officers they toppled down the emperor um, and they took power as a military coup. Uh, it's yeah, and then that government changed itself into a military dictatorship. And uh, one person called Mengistu, Mengistu Haile Mariam is his name. He was a lieutenant. Uh, even before that, he was a major and then he became a lieutenant from the army. He, um, he killed some of them. He imprisoned others. He uh, chased out some and he became a dictator. 
Just a one-person dictator. A one-person dictator. <laughs> and you told me he's still alive, right? He's still alive in Zimbabwe. Yeah. Yeah, he's still alive. He's maybe 80-something years. Wow. And uh, he embraced... He took power in what year? 70 75. Okay. With his group of people. But then by 1976, he completed his... You know, he's one-man dictatorship and he became the dictator. And he, right at that time, he embraced communism of the Soviet type because, well, long story, but he shifted from, from the Western world towards the Soviet Union. Before that, Ethiopia was basically with the Western world, America, you know, Europe and so on. Mm-hmm. But then he came. And for his own other reasons, he shifted to the, the Soviet support. So Soviet at that time, socialist, they started supporting him and he embraced communist ideology. He embraced socialism and he said, socialism is our guide for this nation. And he became a communist. So the government as a whole became a dictatorial communist government. Mm-hmm. So even though you would have described yourself as a communist, you had problems with this dictatorial communist. We had problems. (laughs) Uh, We also claimed to be communist. By by the way, I became a communist officially for myself. I became a communist. I embraced the ideology after studying for about two years or more with some friends of mine in a small communist cell group, we call them. And we started studying, reading and studying the works of uh, Marx, Karl Marx, the works of Lenin, the works of Mao, of China and so on, and other Western communist uh, literatures. As I told you earlier, communism generally, socialism, Marxism, Leninism became a trend. So we get into that and we, we, we were curious to read those literatures and we used to find books from American, Ethiopian students in America, Ethiopian students in Europe, they send us books. And then we came into groups and study. And um, we studied and we said, okay, now we are communists. And this is ideology that is good for Ethiopia. And stage by stage, we had a vision of Ethiopia changing into a communist kind of state. That was our vision. Right. But you, but the communist dictator that took over. Yeah. What is his name again? Mangisto. Right. Yeah. You didn't like him. Yeah, we didn't. And because we believe that even though he said that he is a communist. We believe that, first, we believe that he's not a true communist. <laughs> okay. That is <laughs> fun. <laughs> I mean, that is, uh, yeah. Two, but what he did in practice, we didn't support that. I mean, he killed tens of thousands of young people. He suppressed every kind of democratic rights and even the right to organize, the right to speak, the right, everything. Um, and it was a military. Even though they say they are communists, it was a military. And we don't, we don't take that. You know, a communist 
government is not a military government. That was what I, we were thinking. So because of this, and, and mainly because of what he, what they were practicing in the country, suppression, oppression, and uh, killings, because of those things, we, we couldn't be able to. There were some um, sectors of the intelligentsia that, who were saying also that they are communists, just like we did. They supported the government. So there were some. There were other sectors of the intelligentsia mm -hmm. that supported the government. But our part, we said, no, this government must not be supported, even though they say communists. Yeah. So you're in your, so you're 20, 21 years old, and all of a sudden you and some yeah. friends get an idea to, to do what? Move to the mountains and do what? What are you going to do about this? Well, before we went to the mountains, we organized ourselves with communist cell groups, you call it, we call it, and different, you know, communist cell groups um, popped up in the, in the, in the country. Um, and then networks of communist cell groups. And then the first ever party, a political organization established in 19, and well, it started in 1973 underground, uh, not official, but then that organization made itself, there were two organizations who made themselves official in 1975. 19, yeah, end of 1975. And, and that party, one of the parties, they took all these uh, communist cell groups under their wings and we joined. In other words, we joined the political organization and we became members of that political party in the city. And we continued our struggle, our uh, revolution, revolution making and organizing people underground, all this is underground because uh, right of organized, right of association is not allowed with that government. So all things are underground. So we started organizing students, um, workers, you know, the teachers, different. So we, we went on that way for two years. Um, until 1977, from 75 to 77, with, in an organized way. And in 1977, where the oppression became very, you know, intense, uh, we decided, our party, our organization decided to get some of us to the mountain to start. Uh, we call it a protracted, Rural armed struggle. <laughs> a protracted rural armed, armed struggle. struggle. Yeah. <laughs> it's a guerrilla warfare. It's short for guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Or long for guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this has always fascinated me, uh, uh, me about you. You're the only, uh, like, I, <laughs> I think about all the friends. I told you this the other day that I have. And I think I don't. I don't even have five friends <laughs> that built an army, overthrew a communist dictatorship, and then helped establish a new government. 
I don't even have two friends <laughs> that have done something like that. You're well, you're my only I am, friend. I'm my, your only friend <laughs> that has done anything even close to this. <laughs> Plus, being a former prime minister, right? So, so the it's fascinating to me. You built an art the just a little bit of the detail of how you put together a hundred and fifty thousand person army from 1977 to. 1991 to 91 when the new government when you when you basically overthrew the communist dictator and established a new government from 77 to 91 you built an army yeah and you funded it and you armed it you know with weapons how how in the world does a 21 year old out of college with a few a few ideologies in his head do that and who, yeah. like, who thinks about doing that? Like I, at 21, I wasn't thinking about anything quite like that. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing is both the international and the national environment. You know, the international environment at that time, as I said earlier, even though there is the Western part, on, but on the other hand, there is this communist, socialist communist ideology uh, becoming the trend and engulfing, especially the developing countries like Africa, Asia, and Europe, and uh, Latin America, as I said. This, this is, this is a context, you know, and at that time, most young people were, uh, drawn into this ideology. It became the fashionable thing at the time, you know. Um, if you remember, even here in America, 1960s and maybe uh, beginning of 1970s, there was this communist movement here, here in, even here in America. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, some of the American leftist movements leaders were our icons there in Ethiopia. Interesting. I remember especially a certain girl at the time called Angela Davis. Yeah. Somebody told me she's still alive here in America. Uh, she's an African-American. At the time, she was a communist, I think. And uh, even her, her photograph with her huge Afro-style hair, mm -hmm. you know, was in our, mm -hmm. on our uh, T-shirts. Yeah, I can remember that. <laughs> yeah, so... I don't really know her history that well, though. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, communist movements in Latin America, communist movements in Asia, and the Vietnamese and Chinese uh, movements became our, you know, exemplary things. We took them as. So that's the international context. So the, the, the national context, as I said, was full of unrest, protests, demonstrations against the government, even against the military government later. So within this context, we also became revolutionaries. We said uh, we have to join this. We have to not only join, but now we have to lead because now we have a political organization. And then we tried it in the, in the cities first to make a revolution and to change the system, that military dictatorship, but it became suppressive. It became oppressive, killed. So we said, okay, no more in the cities because we can't. So we have to have another way of continuing the revolution. And that way we saw 
And as we learned and studied from Vietnam and China and also Cuba, we said we have to take arms and go to the mountain and start. And there was an organization. So that organization started that armed struggle and we joined it, them. We were very few first when we started. So we were very mobile, a mobile guerrilla warfare um, because we have a very strong government army facing us, coming after us every time, chasing us and campaigns and so on. So we had to be very, very mobile, extremely mobile. But at the same time, we were uh, teaching our, our vision, our cause to the people, mainly to the rural areas and small towns. Um, in the mountains where transportation and all those things are not okay for the enemy force to, you know. So that's how we started. We were in small groups, small, extremely mobile groups, and we fight wherever, um, wherever things are, situations are okay, favorable for us to attack uh, a separate government garrisons, army garrisons, we attack those. Wherever we find small garrisons, we attack, um, having gathered our force together and attack that small garrison of the government and get uh, arms. Um, so once you, once you conquered them, you would have new weapons. Yes. We <laughs> you just confiscate weapons, the weapons. We, yeah. we, you know, captives, prisoners of wars and so on, and we arm ourselves and we take prisoners of wars of the government army and we teach them, we tell them why we are fighting this fight. What are the problems in our country and so on and so forth. And, and we sent them back to their, you know, their garrisons, back to their government. They go there and they, they tell, you know, the story Hmm. that we told them. <laughs> so you would educate your POWs and then send them home. Yes, send them <laughs> home and they tell. You okay. know, they tell to their friends what they say. And uh, we deliberately become good to them. We don't, we don't hurt them unless, you know, on, right on the battle. Once they are prisoners of wars, we handle them very wisely and very, very good. Hmm. And they tell this that. In mm. fact, after, after some years, um, when we do battles, the soldiers, the government soldiers started saying, hey, once you give up and surrender, they don't kill. They started saying that, you know, within themselves. Mm -hmm. And if, if a battle becomes strong, then they easily surrender because they know that we don't kill them. Oh, interesting. Surrender and we get our arms and we teach them and we send them back. Wow, interesting. So, so that's, that's how we arm ourselves. Yeah. We get arms of different kinds. So how did you get the funding, the money to, because your, your army grew yeah. to 150,000 or something like that. Yeah, 150,000, the regular army, militia army, and so on, including mm -hmm. all those things. Um, and you had like Green Berets and, and Marines from America that would train your armies. Is that right? 
Yeah. Some, uh, a little bit? or Yeah, not Americans. But, oh, not Americans. Yeah, not okay. Americans, but Ethiopians. What happened but Ethiopians is, that had trained in America. Trained in America. Okay. So what happened is uh, after a year or two, after we started our armed struggle, our guerrilla warfare, people from the army, the government army started to defect, desert the army and come to us, you know, supporting our cause. And this happened because before we started the armed struggle, when we were in the capital city, as I told you, in the cities, we had been um, teaching and we had been penetrating with our organizational structures into the army. And we had members in the army. So as a result of that, when we started our armed struggle, what I remember, in fact, that impacted a lot uh, our growth is positively is that an elite airborne army of more than 500 people with their commander, they defected the government army and they joined us in the mountain. Hmm. This army is an elite airborne army and the officers of this army, most of the officers, including the lieutenant colonel who was the commander of that army, were trained here in the United States okay. with Green Berets and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So those guys came and joined us and it was a feast for us. I mean, they trained us. They gave us the military training mm-hmm. and these people are elite airborne commanders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we get our military training from them and we had our own training center. So they were our trainers. So every time new young people come, they train there and we give them political training and we started building our army and we get our arms from captives. So we started growing this way. Uh, And the money. The money part. (laughs) First, when we were not, you know, when when we were small in number, um, we were completely dependent on the people the people that were living, you know, in rural areas. Mm -hmm. So the main thing that we want was, you know, what we eat and the people were feeding us. We go, for example, here's the thing that we do. We go to a village and there are clusters of villages in rural areas. We go to a village and we call the people of that village, all of them, mainly the men, and we teach them. We tell them why we are fighting, you know, what's our vision, what's our cause and so on. And when we teach them, we, we bring issues and questions of their own, their issues. What are the issues that they are sensitive mm-hmm. about in oppression and oppression? For example, um, excessive taxation by the government. That's an issue. Uh, <laughs> land question. That's an, that's the issue. Yeah. Taxation things, without representation. Things like that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so the, it's it's appealing issues. Okay. It's appealing to them issues, and mm-hmm. we say that's why we are fighting. So mm-hmm. help us. 
So they, they feed us. And they even send their children, their sons, to join us. Well, go and join them and fight mm-hmm. for this, you know. And we start, after some time, after a few years, we started to organize them, the people itself. So we call it people's administration. So we establish people's administrations mm-hmm. in, our, in the area that we, we fight. And after some years, we started taxation. Because those areas, they have people administrations that, that we organize. And they are administered by the people themselves. They, we, we let them choose, elect their own leaders. And um, we defend them from the enemy force, mm-hmm. from the government force. We defend them. Defend, in a sense, militarily, some areas. Mm-hmm. Now we are grown. And then uh, they feed us. And then we start a taxation system, and we get fund from that. Mm. That was one source. The other source was our members in the cities, even where the, the military dictatorships, the government administers, we, have, we had... Uh, Uh, members, a lot of members, underground members, and they sent us money. Um, the other source was our supporters and members in America, here in America, Ethiopians, America, Europe, and other places, Canada, Australia, and so on. So we had members and supporters. Even though they are not members, we had supporters, you know, our cause, supporting our cause. And against those who are Every, everyone against the government wants us to, <laughs> to continue our fight. So they send us money. So these are our sources. Okay. All right. So, so let's, let's fast forward to, you know, you, you've built the army. Let's, let's talk about 91 and the new government and, and yeah. what, what transpired in 96. Let's get to that. In 1991, after 15 years of guerrilla warfare, uh, after we organized our army, we had all sorts of um, weapons, by the way, except, of course, jet fighters. We had no jet fighters, helicopters, and so on. But on the ground, we had all sorts of weapons, including tanks and artilleries and, you know, even anti-aircrafts and so on. We had that. At, uh, you know, towards the end of, mm-hmm. in the 1980s, for example, we were, we became a formidable military organization with an army. And there were also other organizations. We, we created a, a, a coalition of organizations and we, we brought our forces together. So we are strong. We became strong. On the other hand, the government was day by day isolated from the people. Um, the, the army was demoralized because of the wars and other issues of its own and so on. That also helped us to defeat the, the government. And in 1991, uh, we controlled the capital. We get into the capital, we defeated the army. 
and the government army was disintegrated into pieces. So we went and controlled and we started and the di- ruling. And the dictator got out of town. He got out of uh, the city. Out of Dodge. Suddenly, uh, <laughs> he, was, he was telling to the people that I will die here, or I will never, and so on. But finally, he was out, out of the country. He went to Zimbabwe. And then we got in and uh, we started uh, a transitional government. Uh, we, we called all opposition forces uh, who were also, you know, fighting and all organizations. About 23 organizations came and uh, we started ruling. Still, we were calling ourselves communists, but because of the, as you remember in 1990, starting from 89, 1990, the Soviet bloc was disintegrating, the communist bloc. And because of that, there were changes in the whole attitude against communism and so on. So we didn't declare when we took power that we were communists. We didn't do that. We were wise enough not to say that. (laughs) (laughs) We just said we are democratic government, you know, Mm -hmm. and so on. We even said market economy and things like that. Mm -hmm. Because the Soviet bloc was defeated, you know, disintegrated. Now it's only the Western bloc led by the American. and, uh, And we didn't want to be seen as communists, even though we believe that we are communists still. Mm -hmm. And also in the country, this communism, socialism, whatever, Marxism, it it was out of the agenda already, even nationally, even in Mm -hmm. the country, you know, people dislike that. Okay. So we started ruling the country, but we wanted still to make it a socialist one. we made the government, the state, our government, our state and our party, the central thing for anything. And um, the former government confiscated everything from, from, you know, the, there was no private ownership except a, a very small scale. We continued that policy, basically. Um, and we continued to rule and, um, by the way, we had no any experience. I mean, look at me. I was a, I was a just a college student. Quit that. Went to the mountains and picked arm and fighting. I had no experience of you know any public service or any mm. government leadership. Mm. No experience. I had the experience of leadership, but in a different context. Mm-hmm. And. Almost all of us had no that experience, but we started <laughs> yeah. early. Yeah. It's so fascinating because, you know, we, I've back in uh, 2008, we, we planted a first vineyard church in Ethiopia. And by, by 2018, it had grown to 27 vineyards and, I was, I'd help support three orphanages over there. But I remember when our churches would try to get property in Ethiopia, <laughs> it wasn't like here. Yeah. <laughs> but you, when you mentioned private property, yeah. um, so that even today there's still these really 
hard to figure out the property rights in oh, yeah. Ethiopia right now. Oh, yeah. Even just for a church to like, you can't really buy a property and say this church owns this property. You have to, it's almost like the government leases it to you. Oh yeah, Something even like now, that. even yeah. now. Yeah, I even mean, now, right? the only thing that you have, for example, land. Land is the property of the state, right? Ownership of the state, either mm-hmm. the local states or the federal mm-hmm. state, and. You don't go and buy from an individual. You don't go and buy and have, you know, certain portion of a land as your own. You don't. You you only can lease mm-hmm. from the government. Right. An exorbitantly high. Yeah, it's so interesting. But anyway, um, so so you set up a government that, and, and even a constitution that actually, some of it is still in play today, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's still it's the still same the same the so. same constitution, but that constitution. And here is what we did wrong. One of the things among many mistakes we did, <laughs> <laughs> but one fatal mistake that we did was uh, the constitution is based on not on citizenship, not on individual rights, not on. Um, you know, for example, the Constitution of the United States is based on individual rights, liberty, uh, you know, and, and equality and things like that, uh, on, based on a citizenship, an individual citizenship. Mm-hmm. That Constitution we made was not based on those principles. It was based on ethnic identity. The Constitution itself gives a primary precedence on based on ethnic identity the mm-hmm. ethnic identity is the 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 identity that is recognized on the constitution and okay. there are about more than 85 ethnic identities in ethiopia more than 85 so it starts from there for example a, a, a very good contrast is between the united states constitution and our constitution in in the preamble of it. The United States Constitution says, we the people, right? Mm-hmm. The Constitution that we did and still still working in Ethiopia starts, we nations and nationalities of Ethiopia. Mm. And those nations and nationalities are ethnic identities. Okay. We nations and nationalities, meaning we the the, the ethnic identities, bro- came together and created Ethiopia. That's what it says. Mm-hmm. Whereas the U.S. Constitution says we the people for the United States. Mm-hmm. A very I mean fundamental difference. Yeah, in the two. Interesting and. And why, like even today in Ethiopia, so we were just chatting right currently, right now, there's this identity issue. Yes. Going on right now. Yes. I was, I was, I was going to go to to that. So that created, what created that? That created division within, within the nation among ethnic groups. And following to that constitution, the provincial states of the country were made to represent ethnic identity. 
Mm. The states of the United States, in contrast, does not represent ethnic identity, right? Right. They are just states where anybody, the citizen of United States, can belong to or live and work and so on. Mm-hmm. But in there, the states within the federal state, every provincial states has their own ethnic identities. Mm. For example, there are three major identities, uh, Oromo, Amhara, Tigray, and so on, you know, mm-hmm. nation. They have their own state called the Tigray state, the Amhara state, the Oromo state, the this state, the that state, mm-hmm. based on language based on ethnicity. There lies a big mistake. Through time, through years, these ethnic identities created their own geographical um, places, Mm -hmm. geographical boundaries that they say, this is mine. So then continues. They started to get other ethnic people who live in their state to chase out of their state. Interesting. So still uh, this, right. this problem was right. aggravated right. Uh, still now. And it, 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 uh, it brought um, an ethnic conflict. Yeah. And that became the main problem. 85 different ethnic groups with 85 different languages. Yes, almost. 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 Some are, of course, very few in number. Mm -hmm. Which the Amharic was still a national language, but was Amharic connected to the Amara ethnic group? Or was Amharic, why why did Amharic? Amharic had wide, widespread application. was that originally from the Amara? Originally the Amara language, but but it became through, through historical, you know, evolving. It became the national language. It's a it's a Semitic language, right? It is a Semitic. It's in yeah. the same family as Hebrew and yeah. Arabic. Yeah. 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 Which is interesting. Semitic. Yeah. yeah. Semitic. Yeah. So all right. So you've got the you're the prime minister of Ethiopia. Your friend is the president. Yeah. And another friend is like the it's you guys are have created this constitution. You're you're now putting your government into place. You're the prime minister from ninety one to ninety six, and what happened at the end of that time? Yeah, my my best friend became president, an executive president. I became a prime minister, like the like the vice president kind of role, mainly on economic matters. But that friend of mine became the president, and then we started ruling. And then after a year, we took power in 1991. And in 1992 up to 95, I started um, studying uh, a master's degree program, an MBA program in economic management uh, from, uh, from London while I was prime minister. And with, with also other friends, not, not by myself only, but why I brought that is that that study plus the, the almost failed application of our socialist things in the nation, these two together created a question in my mind. 
that says, are we, are we on the right track or is this thing called socialism and all the policies are not working? I started questioning, especially intellectually that that study helped me to ask a lot of questions. And I started entertaining some policy changes in the party and also in the country. And because of those ideas, I get into a problem with my own best friends because they didn't want any change and they knew that where, where I am going to, um, you know, those ideas would, uh, you can say first nag the system as a whole. And if it continues, it will disrupt the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So they had to get rid of me one way or the other. So that friend of mine was, we were best friends and we were together in the mountain, you know, in the guerrilla warfare, more than 10 years out of the 15. And, you know, we love each other and very good friends. And, but an election was coming after a few years and he was not sure that he would be the next one. But I was pretty sure that I would be the next one. And mm. that also get into play and my ideas get into play. And because of this, he, he started conspiring against me. Interesting. So, um, I think, I think we're going to, uh, pause at this moment in the story for, uh, for a part two. All right. But so interesting because when I, and when I've been in Ethiopia, after I met you, I've mentioned your name in, in different places in Ethiopia and many, many people, um, feel like they have a great respect for you in Ethiopia. They, ah, they put their hand over their heart. Tom Rotlaney. So I know you have your detractors. Yes. We'll get into that a little bit, but and what happened yeah. uh, once your friends decided you you were a threat, right? <laughs> um, That's right. And so, but, and the other thing is, is when I brought you to Kansas City and people in the Ethiopian community in Kansas City found out, I, I had people here in Kansas City, oh, thank you for bringing our prime minister to Kansas City. They put their hand over their heart and it was so... So touching, yeah, uh, the, yeah. the the love and respect for you, and uh, you know, in a certain sense, I mean, I don't, you don't go around saying this, but I, but there's you're you're a national hero for Ethiopia. It's it's I, I feel so honored that you're a guest in my home. You know, it's uh, I'm pleased. I'm, Thank I'm you. Very for honored that. and blessed. Yeah. So everybody, this is Tom Rot Laney, and um, we are going to pick up right here. This is this is sort of like like the we're just getting into the interesting thing i think i mean not that the the army and guerrilla warfare isn't interesting but it even gets a bit more intriguing at this point so we will pick up here next time thanks for joining us at spirituality adventures and have a great day thanks again for tuning in remember to visit our support page at www.spiritualityadventures.com if you like what you heard be sure to share it and leave a comment thanks again have a great day 
Harvey Media Production.